the balls that we juggle in life are actually made out of rubber, so they bounce back if you drop them, <laughs> with the exception of your health, which is made of glass. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn what to look for in a co-founder, how going full-time in their business led to $250,000 in sales, and which social media channel is the best to use to get press. Today, I'm joined by Connie and Laura from New Body. New Body is a female-founded beauty company that creates natural skincare at affordable prices. And was started in 2017, based out of Toronto, Canada, and is a seven-figure business. Welcome, Connie and Laura. Hi, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, excited to have you both on. So this all started with a problem that you're both personally facing that led you to create New Body, which, by the way, is spelled N-I-U. And body. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about this this personal challenge, this personal problem that you both are facing that led you to want to create a business? Yeah, definitely. So this was born out of both Connie and my own personal passions within the natural beauty space. So I had just graduated from university. I went to the University of Toronto, studied chemical engineering, and during my fourth year of school, started to get really into natural beauty. Just loved everything about trying different products started to get really into looking at the ingredients in these as well um, with an engineering lens. And I began to be super frustrated with just how expensive everything was. Uh, Being a recent grad, I didn't have a lot of money to spend on skincare, unfortunately. (laughs) And a lot of the brands that I wanted to shop because they actually had great, amazing, clean, natural ingredients in them were way out of my price point. Like I would have had to drop probably $500, $600 for a full routine Um, And so that was the initial frustration that we set out to conquer was making natural skincare products more affordable. Got it. Now, what was your backgrounds at this time? Like, did you, either of you have experience creating a product like this? Not necessarily. Like I had my chemical engineering background, so I was comfortable tinkering around in a lab and um, understood like the basics of how to speak that lingo. Mm -hmm. But actually, after I graduated, I took a non-traditional route and went into software sales just because I loved the unknown and the risk and the excitement that goes along with um, being in sales. Um, So I wouldn't say that either of us had experience formulating before that. Yeah, I would say in terms of like just a side passion uh, type of thing, for me personally, ever since I was young, I was very interested in natural skincare and also playing around with ingredients in my mom's kitchen. Uh, So I remember coming home from school and middle school and like playing around with green tea and like mashing up bananas and Um, you know, using egg yolks and egg whites and making face masks. So that was probably the extent of our formulating knowledge um, at that point. Just goes to show you can really start from wherever you are. You don't need to be an expert to start a business. Yeah, definitely want to dive into how you gain expertise in a bit. And I think your story of being a a, a young creator, you know, starting off, tracing basically your entrepreneurial and your creator roots back into your past is definitely something the audience listeners out there that are also entrepreneurs can certainly resonate with. So you you mentioned that, did the both of you go just kind of get like day jobs at, at this point while starting the business on the side? Like how did the the kind of careers lead back into the business? 
Yeah. Um, so I can start. Uh, so for me, during the time that Laura and I started working on Newbody, I was working in marketing and sales at Kimberly Clark. Um, so it's one of the large multinationals. They make Kleenex and Huggies and Kotex and such. Um, so that was my time where I was really learning how to negotiate with buyers and understand brand management, which actually lends itself really well to my current role at Newbody, where I manage marketing and sales. Um, but we did side hustle it for a year and a half. Uh, while Laura, I guess, can jump into what she was doing. Yeah. So actually to back up a little bit, um, this was an idea that I initially had after graduating from university and I was working a full-time nine to five in software sales, found that I was really lacking that creative outlet in my life um, and had a lot of spare time in the evenings and weekends that I wanted to fill up with a business. Um, I'd had two companies in the past and knew that that was eventually where I wanted my career to take me. Um, so uh, this idea for new body, just, I couldn't get it out of my head. I was so convinced there was something here within this market and that it was solving a real need that I had at least experienced. And so I quote unquote pitched the idea to one of my friends who happened to know Connie from middle school. And so he, uh, had mentioned to me, oh, you should, you know, run this idea by my friend Connie, do some consumer research with her. So that's actually how the two of us initially met was just under those, pretenses. And I brought our little like minimum viable product with me to that meeting. It was just supposed to be a quick 45 minute sushi dinner turned into like a three hour business brainstorming session. And Connie and I were just vibing off each other the Mm -hmm. whole time of having very similar visions for what the brand would turn into, um, as well as our own personal set of values. Um, but also polar opposite interest within what roles we would play in the, in the business and opposite strengths and weaknesses. Um, So I knew that I wanted a co-founder and at the end of that first dinner offered for her to join me on this crazy ride. And luckily she accepted. Mm -hmm. So that was in November of 2016. And then we launched March, 2017, continued to work our full-time jobs up until a little over a year ago, September of last year. Mm -hmm. And during that initial time period, we were both, you know, meeting up at our apartments um, in the evenings, on the weeknights, and then on the full day weekends, we'd, you know, usually be together in our apartments. And when we were side hustling in the beginning days, because, you know, we both only put in $2,000 to start the business, we didn't have money for a warehouse or anything like that. So, you know, all the manufacturing was initially done in my kitchen um, on our countertop. And then because my apartment wasn't big enough to hold all the packaging supplies um, and all the shipping materials, then Laura would lug all the finished product back to her apartment and then fulfill orders um, through Shopify from her apartment. So that was what it looked like in the beginning days, which now we can look back on fondly, but it was definitely a big hustle period. Yeah, definitely want to touch on that too, the the transition from the, the day job into the side kind of hustle mode and then eventually transitioning it to the full-time business. Now, I think, uh, Laura, you had mentioned that you knew you wanted a co-founder. I think people out there that are thinking about starting a business are also potentially at this crossroads where they wonder, can I do this alone? Should I do this alone? Or should I find someone to co-found a business with me? What goes into a decision like that? If someone comes to you and asks you to like, how do I know if I should look for a co-founder or do this? you know, solo, how do you help them understand the the answer to that question? Yeah, it's a great question. And it really comes down to the individual entrepreneur. Um, Fortunate for for me, I had run a business in the past on my own, which was very different. It was an exterior house painting business. And uh, I found that experience really isolating. Like 
Um, and even thinking back on like my time in school, my favorite types of work environments were group projects. I just love working within a team setting. I love having someone else to bounce ideas off of, to kind of stress test my ideas, to add value to their ideas. So it's that constant communication. I'm not an independent worker. I'm definitely a team worker. So I'd say if you're kind of torn in that decision, think back to other times that you've had a business or been involved in a team environment, like what default you tend to go towards. Um, and also it comes down to, did, have you met someone that you think would be a good co-founder? Of course, co-founder match and compatibility is super important. Um, I think Connie and I got kind of lucky meeting each other so early on in this, mm -hmm. because I know it's something that a lot of founders struggle with finding someone that, you know, adds value and perspective to the business, but then they can also get along with well outside of work hours. And those two things are super important. Um, so it, yeah, it comes down to the individual. Got it. Now, so when you when you went into this meeting for the first time, then you said over sushi. What was it that you were either both of you or either of you were looking for, like criteria almost to determine if this would be a good fit or not? I know this is super early in the in the I guess the business, so maybe you want to think about this too much. But maybe even looking back on it, like what are the kind of green flags and red flags that you would look for in a co-founder? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say that we were going in looking for criteria because we truly didn't expect to go into that meeting looking for a co-founder. Like it was just to do market research. And Connie was just generous enough with her time to be like, oh, I'll meet up with my friend's friend to tell her if I like her business idea. So it wasn't under the context of being like, oh, we're testing out, see if this is a partnership. So it felt very much more natural than that. But then as Connie and I were having the conversation and the idea came into my head of being like, okay, maybe this is a good person. I'd say the things that I was looking for was her value set. Like, is she a good person in her core? Is she someone that I would trust? Do I think she would try to like lie, steal or cheat within the company? <laughs> um, obviously those things would be huge red flags. Um, I don't like people with massive egos. So making sure that the other person was really down to earth was super important. Um, we also talked about the Myers-Briggs personality test. Uh, Connie and I both love Myers-Briggs types, and I really believe in them. And uh, we found out during that first meeting that we're actually polar opposite. So I'm an INTP, she's an ESFJ, which was kind of like a cool affirmation as well mm -hmm. that this is someone who can clearly balance out my personality and my strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. So those were the things like men <laughs> having complementary personality mm -hmm. sets and interests. Yeah, definitely completely agree with everything Laura said, especially the values part. Like I think a lot of the times when you're thinking about, um, you know, side hustling or starting a business, you're just thinking about the full on hustle mentality. But something that Laura and I found that we both share is like we both are probably within the top three um, people in our networks in terms of the level of hardworking um, and like in terms of the level of hustle we're willing to put in. But at the same time, it's not like our entire days are only working on new body. Like we both value seeing our families. We both value having time to work on our health and focus on like going to the gym and, you know, mental health and such. And I think that's really important because, you know, if you have it uneven where one person is just like, go, go, go all the time, then you're going to, you're going to get into conflict. Um, and that's something that we realized really early on was that we both really had this exact same like family values and the vision for where we saw our lives heading in the next five to 10 years. But at the same time, our skill sets were just completely opposite in a really good way. Okay, so it sounds like this to sum it up, polar opposites in skill set, but shared like life philosophy and work ethic was the kind of winning combination for the two yeah, of you. Yeah, definitely. 
Got it. Okay. So let's talk about this because uh, you mentioned again that this was something that you're both doing on the side as a side business and, and, and working a day job. Tell us about the, the balance. Because again, this is another spot that I think a lot of entrepreneurs are at where they are trying to to figure it out because they're at this point where they have a day job and they are maybe semi-successful with their side business at this point is trying to make them both work. Tell us about your experience doing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was definitely really challenging, I think, for both of us to manage that period where we're doing both things. I think what helped us the most was having a clear structure. So we would meet up usually for a full day every weekend, usually it was Sundays. And then generally speaking to uh, weekday evenings throughout the week. So for us, it was usually Tuesdays and Thursdays. Mm -hmm. And then also trying to make sure that you do as much work together. I think there's a high tendency these days to do as much remote work as possible because technically it's possible to do. But the team dynamics, I think, really suffer when you're not working on things together. So even if you don't technically need to be in each other's presence, make sure that you get that FaceTime in is really important for uh, achieving that balance. And then as soon as you possibly can, get some level of separation between your home environment and your work environment, even if that means you know not having stuff like in your bedroom so mm-hmm. that there's somewhere that you can go to escape the business and not be surrounded by it, yeah. even though it's never going to leave your mind. Like you'll always be thinking about the company once you commit to the life of an entrepreneur. Yeah. I remember one time when we used to store, you know, all the products in my apartment, they were all over my living room. There was oil everywhere on the floor because our first product was coconut oil based. And I remember one night getting up in the middle of the night and I just slipped on some oil and tripped over a box I fell on my face. And it was just one of those moments where I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, is this like, who am I to think that, you know, we can really pull this off. And so I completely agree with Laura that as soon as you're able to develop some sort of separation, that's key. Um, In terms of, you know, balance in the beginning, it's something we're both still struggling with getting um, a hang of because I know, I mean, for both of us, we think our twenties are when we should be really working hard and hustling. Um, so again, don't have that fully figured out, but I remember the beginning days, um, what was hard was, you know, when you're at the office working your full-time job, you still need to do a really great job, obviously for the company that's paying you. And then we would both have calls scheduled with buyers and suppliers. And, um, you know, we'd run into little meeting rooms in our office and, you know, try to call another person and pretend we were in the same room. Um, and there were times where we'd stay up like for three weeks, um, straight making products by hand in the evenings, um, for our first large order for like 7,000 units, um, because we, again, bootstrapped and couldn't afford to outsource that manufacturing. But because Laura and I were so sure that, you know, we were going full time with this eventually, and we were sure that this was a problem that, you know, we could solve for a lot of consumers. I think that really led us through that difficult and dark time. Mm, yeah, so that's, let's start off as a question about balancing the day job, the side business, but you touched on something important as well, which is the work-life balance. Once you do kind of devote yourself to the entrepreneurship lifestyle and have your business that you're working on full-time, because it's a lot easier to separate that when you have a day job, right? Because you work your nine-to-five, and, you know, for the most part, you can't have that 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 clear-cut boundary for them, you know, again, for the most part. But you are both very purposeful about setting this work-life balance, or at least working towards it as entrepreneurs, as people that are working on your own business. Did you both have some kind of like, I guess, I guess like traumatic experience with not having the right balance that makes you both really emphasize the importance of setting those boundaries and having that that separation, that work-life balance between your business and your, your personal life? A traumatic experience. <laughs> That's um. 
it just sounds like you guys are so, so very purposeful again about having this boundary that I think not a lot of people think about. Just very mature 20 year olds or 20 something year olds. Um, yeah. I wouldn't say that there was anything specifically traumatic. One thing I would say though is that on a weekly basis, Laura and I have a retrospective where we reflect on the week, um, what went well and what could have been improved. Um, which I think is a really great structure to have. And something that we noticed repeatedly is whenever we would work like full day weekends after going full time with new body and not having any personal time, that would be a week where we would just feel really burnt out, um, kind of a little more uninspired and things would take a little bit longer to do. Um, so, you know, reflecting on that and noticing that having even those extra few hours for yourself where there's nothing work related actually helps you become more productive um, was a good realization. So some things that I personally do to try to set some boundaries, again, not perfect with this at all, um, is since I live by my calendar, I physically block in um, calendar blocks um, called like me time or like self-care time in the evenings to make sure that A, I don't, you know, book something with a friend or have a meeting at that time, but also I'm not working through that evening. So it could be something as simple as like reading a book, going to the gym, et cetera. Um, another thing that helped a lot was pausing my inbox. Um, because it's so easy to get addicted to refreshing your inbox and seeing who else you can reply um, even at midnight. So for me, I pause my inbox at 10 o'clock and then I don't let emails come in until 7 a.m. the next day. So I can't be tempted to check my phone in the middle of the night. So those sound like, you know, very nitpicky ways to ensure that I'm not, you know, thinking about work all the time. Um, but sometimes you just have to set those controls in place uh, because you naturally want to be working on your baby. Right. So, so do you believe that this is something that, well, before I forget that, so, so you basically, your reaction is that when you see that you are not making as much progress, I think a lot of people might react by saying, I need to work harder, I need to work more. You're saying you need to work less and have more self-care time. Do you believe that this is something, this, this philosophy is something you should always do at, regardless of what stage you are in your business? Or do you believe it's more like, I guess almost like a, a, a earned luxury once you have some kind of momentum behind you? I think it's something that you should always focus on because you can only be, you know, go, go, go for so long before inevitably you will get burnt out. And I do remember that during that period where we were side hustling and working full time jobs, I my immune system was for sure compromised because I remember I was getting sick like probably once every two months. Whereas I don't think I've been sick like hardly at all in the past year, like maybe once in a full year. Mm -hmm. So like even changes like that, that are really kind of clear and just feeling like you didn't have any you time, mm -hmm. even though we didn't have any necessarily like traumatic experiences with this process, but then also, um, you know, being kind to yourself of not feeling a level of pressure of having to do it all. Like I know that there'll be times a new body will start to slide or, um, maybe new body's going great, but then my personal life slides. And I read this quote the other day that's, the balls that we juggle in life are actually made out of rubber. So they bounce back if you drop them <laughs> with the exception of your health, which is made of glass. So if you drop that, there's, it's really hard to recover from something like that. So I think prioritizing your health is always important and the business shouldn't come in the way of that. Yeah. I think something Laura and I are both really cognizant of is also the type of culture that we want to build when our team eventually expands. And if people are looking at the co-founders not taking care of themselves at all and working, you know, burning the candle at both ends, then they're probably thinking they're being, going to be expected to work the same level of hours. And we want to make sure that new body is the type of place where people would be excited to work for and not get burnt out and, and can have really creative ideas and just feel inspired and empowered to work for. 
Mm. Now, when you are starting this business on the side, I think the reaction a lot of people have when they are in the same situation where they're starting on the side is that their immediate kind of response or conversation having in their head is like, I, I don't have the time right now. I need to make more time to, to to actually pursue this. Now, when you were going through it, where again, you had the day job and you're working on this on the side, did you feel like you needed more time or like what is your reaction, I guess, to that kind of comment that – you need like, you know, more time essentially to work on your business while you are working a day job? I mean, time is always a limited commodity for everybody, right? So I wouldn't say that we ever feel like, oh man, like I have so much extra time in the day. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't say that we necessarily struggle with that, but it really comes down to what what is a priority for you. And I would just have, and I know that Connie's the same, that we would have so much regret if this wasn't something that we went after and if we didn't put everything that we have into it. Um, So it's kind of just deciding for yourself, like, okay, so if you don't have time for this, is that something that if it doesn't end up happening that you can be okay with? And the answer is yes, then cool. Don't Mm -hmm. don't stress about it. But the answer is no, then it's probably worth carving out the time or finding it from somewhere. Yeah. And and we're lucky in that, you know, we're young, like we're both 26. We don't have kids. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have husbands. We have boyfriends. (laughs) But like there's less responsibility when it comes to home life. So I think that that makes things a lot easier as well. I have so much respect for moms with many kids who are able to also have successful companies. Mm-hmm. I just, I can only imagine the juggling game yeah. that they must have. I would definitely say like when people are thinking about starting a side hustle and they're concerned that they don't have enough time, like you make time for the things that you care about. And you know, that story I alluded to earlier where we stayed up for like three weeks making these products, it wasn't like it was where we necessarily want to be um, every evening and like every Saturday and Sunday, like hand pressing these makeup wipes. Um, but we chose to do it because that was our priority. And I remember like th- there was one night, um, one day where it was like the first nice day of the spring and everyone was out like on the patios and our friends were like, where are you guys? And we were just inside my condo, like making these wipes and just looking out the window being like, damn, it's really nice out. <laughs> and we looked at each other and we're like, okay, just keep going. Um, but that's the thing, like that's a side of entrepreneurship. I feel like a lot of people do not see and they just, you know, tend to hear about these glamorous stories of overnight successes and things like that. And they don't see everything that goes on behind the scenes um, and all the manual work involved in the beginning of a side hustle. So definitely keep that in mind, you know, for all the listeners out there, when you're thinking about starting your side hustle, that there are going to be sacrifices, but you just have to think about if it's worth it to you to pursue. Mm. Something I think one of you said earlier too was that you had both decided that you were going to someday go full time with this, and that, I think that gives you some of the the fuel, the light at the end of the tunnel to go through those sacrifices. Now, what made you so sure? How did you build that kind of uh, belief that the business was going to be successful enough where you were going to be able to focus on it full time eventually? Um, I would say like from day one. That when Laura talked about the idea of new body, I was immediately drawn in. For me personally, I remember before I met Laura, like even two months before, I was telling my sister that even though I had a job that I really loved, I still felt unfulfilled and I knew I wanted to start something. And when Laura's idea was in the natural beauty space, it was like a dream come true because natural beauty and natural skincare is like 
my number one love. And so having the ability to start my own business with Laura, as well as being in a field that I genuinely was passionate about, um, was something that I could not let go of. So from day one, when Laura and I were talking about the market opportunities and how we'd be different, it was never really a question of if we would go full time, to be honest, it was just when we would do it. And how we decided when we would go full time was we knew that we wanted to have six months worth of um, you know, money saved up in our bank accounts so that we wouldn't need to be making decisions out of desperation. So we weren't the type of entrepreneur to like drop everything right away and quit our jobs. We, you know, worked for a year and a half to save up that runway. Um, but when we did quit, we felt comfortable with that decision. And immediately after we went full time, our sales skyrocketed. I remember like two weeks after we went full time, we signed a massive deal for like 250, 300 K. Um, and that's definitely because we're able to put our full-time hours in. Mm. So, yeah, so you say those six months of it, it sounds sound like living expenses to do this. What, how was the the business looking at that time where you decided to go in full-time? Like, was there a, a you know, I guess, a path towards, towards uh, revenue at that point? There was in that we felt that we had found product market fit. Um, so we were starting to see great numbers in terms of reorder rates um, same with like, uh, us being able to land some retail accounts. So as Connie mentioned, within a few weeks of us going full time, we landed that big partnership, which was a wholesale partnership. Um, so there was definitely runway and traction. And we had also just gotten into an accelerator, which was kind of a lucky timing type thing. So I had already given my notice. Um, and then we found out that we were getting into an accelerator, which just out of chance, the first day of that program was the first day of us both being full time. Um, so kind of all the stars were aligning. And uh, also, I think there's a certain level of just kind of saying, OK, I want to go full time with this. Like, let's make it happen as soon as it can happen. And knowing that you're probably never going to feel fully comfortable when it comes to making that leap. Like, it's always going to be scary. I think that was something you mentioned earlier, which was about how you did not want to make decisions out of desperation. I think there's important. It's also the other side of the coin where uh, where people tell you that you should just kind of jump out the plane and then figure it out on the way down and just kind of quit your job and have no safety net. And what you're getting, I think, here is that when you don't have kind of the cash to pay your rent, you're kind of always chasing the the next paycheck or otherwise you're you're going to be homeless or you know, you're not going to be in a good situation. But if you have that runway, you have some kind of uh, you know, cash coming in or cash saved up, you are making more long-term decisions. I think there's a really undervalued point that you're making here about why it is important to kind of hedge your bets a little bit so that you don't make, again, these desperate uh, mm-hmm. decisions. Now, you mentioned that soon after you quit, you both uh, went into this full-time, you landed that two hundred fifty to $300,000 wholesale partnership deal. What did you do with your time that allowed you to start kind of making these big leaps in the business? Yeah, I mean, I can speak to the retail side. So, you know, if you want to like reflect back on when we were side hustling, I could only respond to, you know, X number of emails per day. And especially during the work day when, you know, other new body buyers were working too, because during that time I was working with my other accounts with Kimberly Clark. And so most of the time during the nine to five workday, I was working my other full-time job. So because of that, when I was side hustling, the only time I could really get work done on new 
body was in the evenings. And then you'd have to wait a full day for a response um, from your counterpart person that you're working with. And so when we went full time, I was able to have multiple messages, multiple calls per day, um, really get the ball rolling that way. Um, and I think that was like a massive change once we went full time. I think also you're in a different mindset when you go full time where, you know, like you just have so much more time to work on your baby. Whereas before, you know, after a nine to five, you're kind of mentally drained and a little bit exhausted. And when you're trying to think of creative ways for, you know, cool opening like cold emails or good ways to respond to a buyer or supplier. Sometimes it just takes you a little more effort to think of it when you're side hustling and to make a, you know, a good impact um, through your emails. Whereas when you're full time, like you you feel more refreshed, even though maybe you're working more hours, um, but you just have so much more time as a resource that way. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now let's get back to the interview. Hmm, that makes sense. Okay, so I want to talk about how you use your resources, especially early on. You mentioned you both put in $2,000 for a total of $4,000 to start the business. Now, when you think back on it, what was the best use of the, of the $4,000? So this wasn't something that we bought right out of the gates, but it was something that we bought, I think, maybe two months in was uh, a really high-quality home like laser printer <laughs> and um, being like a physical goods company, one really annoying point for us was ordering labels for our first line of products because they were super expensive at the quantities that we were ordering at. And then if we wanted to change anything about our design or our formula, which is a great thing to be able to do since you're growing and still learning about what exactly your brand means, we found that we were having to waste inventory or we just wouldn't make those changes because of like the sunk cost mindset. So um, investing into that printer, which I think was like 250 bucks <laughs> was amazing. And it served us well for like, I think over a year and a half, almost two years that it was still going for. And we would use it basically just to print our own labels. So we would buy these like really nice quality um, printer sheet labels essentially, and use those for our products. So if we needed to make tweaks, we could do it on the fly. Um, just making sure that the money that we invested was not going towards things that seemed really glamorous to have, like mm -hmm. spending a ton extra on really, really nice business cards or having all these brochures printed off because chances are your brand is going to change before you can use up all of that material anyways. And then it's just kind of like money down the drain. Mm -hmm. Something that, you know, of course you need to spend on is incorporating. Um, so that was something that I think was the first thing that we did um, after we started working together was just to make sure we could protect our personal assets. And that was maybe, I think, $400 Canadian. Um, but other than that, I think <laughs> I agree with Laura that the printer was, um, you know, definitely the first thing that comes to mind in those initial hustle days. Yeah, that's funny. So you mentioned, though, that the mistakes that you, you at least see other entrepreneurs making or that you definitely warn entrepreneurs from making is investing in, in like the, the business card and things that, again, that might change with your brand, uh, you know, pretty soon after you're launching. Do you remember some of the things that maybe you did make mistakes with that you did realize like the $4,000 out of those $4,000 or early on that you probably shouldn't have spent money on or at least looking back on it uh, in hindsight? 
Um, something that I can think of, it wasn't necessarily in the first couple months, but because we didn't have a lot of money to play with, but we also wanted to attend trade shows um, to meet with retailers was we're like, okay, uh, within the beauty space, um, for any of the listeners who are thinking of starting a beauty brand, Indie Beauty Expo is one of the most reputable um, trade shows to attend. They're all over the world. But the cost to attend, I believe, was $4,000 US just for a booth. And because we only had 4000 Canadian in our account to play with, it didn't make sense for us to attend. But we also still want to get you know some validation of this Canadian brand brand in the U.S. market. So we tried to find a trade show that was lower cost, and we did end up finding one in New York that was around, I think, $1,500. Yeah, it was quite a bit cheaper. And we were like, okay, this is great. Like, this will be a good way for us Our to meet, test. Yeah, yeah. meet with buyers and press. And they guaranteed us a lot of things and said that we'd be meeting with people from, like, Vogue and Vanity Fair and, like, you know, Nordstrom and even Marcus. And we went there, and it was um, I have definitely oversold to us. And that was one of the things where Laura and I looked at each other and we're like, okay, trade shows is definitely something that we're not going to spend on until we're ready to attend the ones where we're going to be meeting with the right contacts. And so then from that point, we held off on trade shows for around six months, I believe. Once we had some more cash flow coming in, then we booked Indie Beauty Expo. And that was like completely night and day um, in terms of the quality of the buyers and press that attended. We made back um, 3x what we put in within a month. Mm. So at least in your industry, in the beauty industry, when it comes to trade shows, you definitely get what you pay for. You should, in your experience, go for kind of the, the top tier events. 100%. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you need to spend tons and tons of money on like the flashiest booth. Like there's ways that you can save money on like the booth expenses because these trade show companies will charge you so much money just to rent like a table or like a chair. It'll be like, you know, $60 just for a chair. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. So there's ways that you can bootstrap that, but definitely when it comes to things that are out of your control, like who attends the mm -hmm. trade show, it's better to go with the um, main brand ones as well. And then while you're there making use of it, like it's unbelievable to us, the number of people that go to these shows and then sit behind their table, sitting yeah. down, looking at their phone the entire time. Um, something that I just thought of that could be more applicable to listeners who aren't necessarily just in the beauty space is another mistake is spending too much on agencies um, in the beginning. So an example I can think of is a PR agency. Um, so something that we noticed when we we're going on, you know, everyone else's um, websites were mentions of like Refinery29, like, you know, Vogue, et cetera. And, you know, we were looking into potentially getting an agency which we did end up spending on and the quality of the press hits that they were able to get us was okay. Like we're able to get a couple of Canadian, um, you know, press hits. But what I found actually worked better was myself just cold emailing as many writers, um, you know, and editors as possible. So I would creep on different websites and see which editors were and assistant editors were writing about competitive products and then reach out to them on Instagram, LinkedIn, email, whatever channel I could find them on, introduce myself as a co-founder and offer to send product. And from that kind of hustle mentality, again, it didn't come overnight. Like I sent out hundreds of these sorts of emails, but we're able to land things like again, L Canada, Refinery29, Pop Sugar, CBC, which is like big in Canada. Um, you know, fashion magazine, live strong, like hello giggles, like these sorts of press sets, you don't necessarily need to pay an agency to get that being said, if you do have the you know budget to pay 10 grand or whatever to, for a high quality agency, um, it does help to have that social proof on your site. 
Mm. Okay, so what was that pitch then when you were hitting these, uh, these when you were not going with an agency, at least early on, and you were uh, reaching out to publications yourself, how did you able, how were you able to get them to, to entertain the, the email at first and then, or the message at first and then eventually featuring you? Yeah, I think a big part of um, press hits and having a story is really just telling the editor about the story of how you started the business, because that's something that's really unique to every business. Whereas, you know, you could have a really compelling um, competitive advantage in terms of like the price point or the affordability or the quality. But at the end of the day, there are many brands that can also say the same thing, but no one can copy the founder's story. So what worked really well for us was saying, you know, we were 23 when we started the business, we were fresh out of university. We each had $2,000, you know, young female founders um, on a mission to make natural skincare accessible for everyone. And a lot of editors could relate to this story because they themselves had found, you know, struggles with affording high quality skincare. Um, And then as we're able to get one press hit, as soon as we had one, I would reference that in the next email being like, by the way, we're also mentioned in L. Um, And that immediately gives you social proof. And you just piggyback off of that. That goes the same for when you're getting a new retail partner. Um, Once we landed our first small retail partner, which was um, in a small, you know, area of downtown Toronto, I would start including that in all my emails that got sent out to retailers just to show that one retailer, you know, took us on. Yeah, that that social proof definitely is compelling, and it just it's just like a coastline where someone doesn't feel like they are taking that big of a risk anymore. It's just someone already mm-hmm. featured you, and they also kind kind of don't want to be left behind and and, and not feature feature you once you they once they start seeing other yeah. press do it. So you mentioned that you hit them up on multiple channels. I think you mentioned some email, LinkedIn, Instagram. Was there a channel that worked better than than others? Yeah, Instagram uh, works really well. Um, And Twitter also. uh, Well, what I would do is a lot of editors will post things on Twitter. Um, I personally don't use Twitter very often, but I would find something that they had been writing to their community about on Twitter and then DM them on Instagram um, and mention that in my DM to them. And most of the times it's harder to contact them through email because you're getting a bunch of inbounds every day. Mm -hmm. But on their personal Instagram accounts, often it's surprising that these assistant editors and editors tend to have maybe sub 10K followers. So they'll have the time to go through their DMs. And you, if you have a personalized message that you're reaching out to them with, um, more often than not, they'll at least reply and give you a shipping address. Um, so what I would do is I would end the DM with something like, you know, I'd love to send you some products to try free of charge. Like, you know, we're not expecting anything. Um, if you're interested, just provide a shipping address. And I think nine out of 10 times people respond, you know, whether they chose to write about us was another story, but at least getting the response, I found Instagram is the best for that. Got it. Now, something you mentioned earlier was about how during a time where you were thinking about going full time into this, you both discovered that you had found the product market fit. And what were you looking for to determine that, that you did have the product market fit? Um, I guess for us, one thing that was a huge validator was very early on, we went to these markets where we got to set up our little like six foot table for the day, bring a bunch of our products in. And a lot of them were local artisans of the other vendors. Um, But these markets get quite a bit of foot traffic and allowed us to have really great and detailed conversations with people who would be our target demographic and target buyers. And just to understand how they shop for skincare products, the types of questions that they asked, how they interact with the product once they're trying it for the first time. Um, And that was a really great learning experience for us. And then also helped to guide what types of products that we released and then also what type of tone we use when we talk about the products to, to shoppers and consumers. 
Um, so that was a very early validator for us. And I remember very distinctly this one time that um, a, a lady who we had met at one of the markets in like August. August came back, I think three months later to the next market, specifically just to see Connie and I and to talk to us about how much her skin had changed. It was a remarkable transformation. Like I remember the first time that we saw her, she had fairly, um, fairly severe hormonal acne and like very active breakouts. And then when we saw her the next time, it had almost all cleared up, like maybe 10% of it was left. So it was just such a great, encouraging feeling to see the change that our products had on her skin. And that's still the the highlights of our days is being able to see um, reviews and testimonials from our actual customers. Yeah, that's certainly amazing. Um, so, so what what tweaks were you making to to discover? I guess to figure out that product market fit. Because it sounds like you were just kind of actively trying to improve that. Like, what kind of changes were you were you both making at that time to to get a better fit? Yeah, we tweaked around with our packaging quite a bit. So upgrading it. Um, since we were bootstrapped initially, it was like we didn't have any exterior packaging of like boxes. And then we upgraded to a model that was a little bit more handmade and then another version that was actually mass produced and getting customer feedback on those things throughout in terms of the types of messaging that we used. Um, even something as simple as like uh, on our website, we used to have this um, series called Boss Babes, but we realized that within the market that we're going afterward, after that term doesn't really resonate with many people anymore. So we changed it to Her Hustle just small things like that, um, pricing as well, scents too. So mm. like seeing people's faces and how they respond to different scents really guided the types of scents that we would use in future products. Um, so it's like yeah. overall And quarters. like another thing I can think of is changing, you know, a product dispenser from a pump top to a cap top, things like that, where we're like, oh, everyone's going to want a pump top cleanser. And then when we launched it, people were like, actually, no, for a cleansing oil, I prefer to be able to control how much oil comes out because you know I might not be wearing that much makeup and a whole pump is going to be wasteful and we're like ah I did not think about that <laughs> um and so I think like Laura said for anyone who's thinking of starting a business especially a product-based business going to local markets and flea markets it's exhausting but it's so worth it and we still have customers to this day who continue to support us through shopping on our Shopify website that we met at our markets in our first couple months of starting new body Got so speaking of uh, her hustle, so you mentioned that you guys have a again her hustle, which is a biweekly biweekly interview that you both have launched. Can you describe the kind of content that you create for it? Yeah, so you know the initial concept for her hustle came around because a big mission for Laura and myself is supporting women in business. And, you know, as a small business right now, we're not able to necessarily donate, you know, large amounts of money to supporting other female foundations or charities. But a way that we knew we could give back was raising awareness of how to start your own business, the common struggles that female founders face, um, and just highlighting other people's successes so that their brand can be visible through our channels and on our Instagram. And as we started posting about these interviews, we also realized like, hey, We can also make this work well for us, too, with co-promotions where, say, we partner with a hair care company. We can both pull in, you know, some products worth like $300 between the two of us and have an Instagram co-promotion on both of our accounts. And that way, our audience can follow their account and vice versa. Um, So it just, you know, started out really organically. But now it's something that a lot of our audience really enjoys and looks forward to. And because we have such a large roster, I think we have over like 75 or 80 of them now. Um, we're able to approach like really large, successful, um, inspiring businesswomen. Uh, one example I can give is I was at Shop Talk with Laura in March and it's a retail conference in Vegas. 
And one of the people speaking was Risa Girona, who is the CMO of Revolve. And, you know, she's massive and has been credited with being one of the first to really capture the influencer marketing trend. So I ran up to her after her presentation and was like, hey, we have this thing. It's called her hustle. Um, we have like at that point that we had like 50 interviews, um, including X, Y and Z people. Would you be interested? And she was like, sure. So we we're able to get, you know, Raisa, um, Raisa on the blog, which was amazing. And from there, we were able to get other people, including like an actress from Harry Potter, who now has a vegan subscription box. And it's all kind of continued from there. Um, and so I think one point that's you know important about this is that content is so important. You shouldn't just be posting on your Instagram, like, here's my product, here's my product, buy my product. You should also be posting value add content that people are going to enjoy following your Instagram or your emails for. Um, so whether that be, you know, for skincare, specifically educating people on what other ingredients are good for your skin or products that you don't even currently have, but like where to shop those from other brands, like something that's not just me, me, me focused, um, really helps a lot. That makes sense. So I think it's super cool the kind of people that you get to meet right through interviewing. It, it's certainly an, an, a, an avenue that I think a lot of other brands should pursue. Now, what is your process for anyone out there that is thinking about doing these kind of uh, interview-based content creation? What is your process for creating this kind of content? Yeah. So for us initially, um, and you know, something that we would love to do is to have more video content. Um, in the beginning, since our budget, again, was so small from bootstrapping, we decided to just do it through email. So the way that works really well for us now is we have a whole library bank of questions and we just send the potential interviewee a Google Doc um, with the questions that we've written out. And one of the questions also asks them to link, um, you know, a folder of images that they would be okay with us sharing on the blog. And then once they have that all filled out, we plug it into our content calendar, our social media coordinator, then, you know, ensures that the blog post is formatted well. And then if the other um, person that we're interviewing has physical goods company, then we often ask them, would you be interested in a co-promotion? Slot that into the calendar as well. But honestly, it's not that hard um, to put together um, because again, it's not really, you know, a face-to-face -face, uh, interview per se. Back actually, now that I reflect on it in the beginning days, we did do everything like face-to-face, -face, but that was when we only interviewed Toronto-based businesses. But even that took a lot of time because when we would be transcribing the interview and ultimately and at the end of the day, I find that the people we interview actually prefer to have some input into how it's written. Um, so they like to be able to write that in the Google Doc. Yeah, I, I like the, how you have it totally systematized so it doesn't have to take much time or even much effort on your behalf to create this kind of valuable content that your audience wants. So once it is created, how do you promote the content after you've created it? Mm -hmm. So multiple ways. Um, so one of them is, again, is through Instagram. So it's usually every other Monday is the Her Hustle feature. Um, and then on Instagram, if they do have, you know, like um, complimentary product like hair care or makeup, um, for example, or journal, then we'll do a co-promotion where we'll both, you know, share a photo of both of our products on both of our accounts and then encourage followers to comment and follow, um, you know, both accounts. That's one way that we raise awareness. We typically see a lift of a couple hundred followers um, from every giveaway that we do. And then we also pro promote on email. So all of our emails that go out aren't just product focused. Again, it shouldn't be about just pushing your product onto your audience. Uh, one of our emails that goes out every month is just like a content type email where we talk about the month. Um, you know, we recap the month. And then we also share our her hustle interviews in that so people can click on that through there. Um, we also always ask that the person who we're interviewing shares it on their personal channels. Um, so say we interview someone with like half a million 
um, Instagram followers, like being able to secure them to even post in an Insta story about that um, is amazing for awareness. Um, so those are a couple of the avenues that we use to promote her hustle. Um, but if you have any ideas, we're more than open. <laughs> we can certainly talk after. So when you are when you are looking to to identify which brands or which personalities, which influencers to work with, like what what how do you how do you I guess filter or how do you decide who to go after? Yeah, it's a really good question. So initially, again, because it was such a small thing in the beginning days, I looked at which female founders I personally knew in the Toronto area because, you know, we'd be meeting them in person. Um, So I remember the very first one was one of my friends, Jessica, and she has a juice company um, right in the heart of downtown Toronto. So that was a really cool one to start with. And then as we start to build um, build up a roster, sometimes we have people actually reach out to us where they're like, hey, like I saw this. And um, I have this business, like, would you be interested in writing about it? Um, So that's one way that we find people. Another way is um, Laura and I love to create lists of like inspiring, like role models and ideas that we have. And, you know, I even have a running list of just people that'd be really cool to try to get on um, the Her Hustle series. So that's one way um, that we get people. Oftentimes, Laura and I are meeting so many different founders um, at different events and markets and, you know, trade shows and conferences. And usually we'll be able to get a couple of her hustle um, features from there. Um, And one thing that we always think about is like, is this person going to be able to provide some sort of like insight um, or is their experience really interesting that people would resonate with it or be inspired by? Um, It's not just like any random person who is, you know, starting something new and wants a quick shout out. Mm. So when you are doing these these giveaways, you mentioned that you are looking to get this, I guess, a co-promotion essentially from from your side and also the the brands that you partner with. Now, what's the um when you when you go from the 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 she hustle or sorry, her hustle side to uh, going to the giveaways? Is that like a pretty high conversion rate where most brands will agree to to do a giveaway? Yeah, 100%. Um, Giving product for promotions is very low cost, um, but usually very effective. Again, like you can definitely see a lift um, in terms of sales as well as in terms of your audience on Instagram. Um, One thing, again, that works really well is having a promo code that you share afterwards. So I'll give an example. Say we partner with Verb Hair Care, um, which we have in the past. So the giveaway bundle is like $500 of hair care and new body product. Um, and there's two winners. But even if you're not one of the winners, you can use the promo code, you know, verb on Newbody's website um, to get 20% off Newbody product. Or you can use the code Newbody on Verb's uh, site, you know, to get like 20% off Verb hair care products. And you can track the results that way and see if people are actually interested. Um, and because you're partnering with a brand that has an audience that is similar um, in interest, and demographic to yours, um, specifically, you know, with makeup and hair and such, um, you will see an impact that way. So for oftentimes people ask, like, how do you do marketing in the beginning days when you don't have a budget um, and you just like are side hustling? I think Instagram still is like a really great tool and doing co-promotions, even if you don't have a blog or anything, but doing co-promotions with other small businesses, um, even with sub, you know, 2000, 3000 followers, that are in a complementary, um, you know, business with yours works really well to grow your following in the beginning days without paying for um, followers because we're not about that. Definitely. Now, how often can you do this? If this strategy is is this successful, can you be can you run like a giveaway every single week, or is there a certain threshold where people are kind of like tuned out of it? 
Mm, yeah, that's again an amazing question. Um, so I remember there was one point where we were getting so many requests to do giveaways that it was pretty much like one every like five or six days. And we're like, no, this is not what we want our brand to be about. We don't want to be about discounting our brand or people just following us for giveaways. So now what we do is we plan to have one every two weeks. It varies though, because right now, for example, as we're recording this, it's the holidays. Um, and so we're having one a week. Um, so each week we have a different theme. So one week is self-care, one week is gratitude. Um, but most of the time we try to keep it to one every two weeks max. Um, because again, you don't want people to be following your brand just to get something for free. At the end of the day, they should really like what your brand is offering and, um, you know, be compelled to purchase if they really do enjoy what you're offering. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about the the site, the, the online store itself. So when you when, was this was this designed in house? Did you guys hire an agency for this? Yeah, it was designed in house. So when we first launched, we just had one of the free themes, and now this one is uh, the base theme to it is prestige. Um, so I think it was like a hundred and twenty dollar theme that we made mm-hmm. some customizations to as well. Now, when you look at the site, like, what do you think, what do you believe like, the most important part of the site in terms of, of uh, conversions or getting you know, the, the purchase, essentially? Um, I think make it very, very clear what you do when they first land on the site so that it's very obvious that we're a natural, affordable skincare company when they first land. Having um, proof, uh, so for us, reviews and testimonials is is massive and making sure that you really focus on driving more of those to the website. And then, of course, calling out those press hits as well, um, if you do have any. Uh, So those two things make it really clear what you offer, having um, social proof. And then the third would just be decreasing the burden uh, of your, like, checkout flow. So making sure that all that's really seamless. Um, We love that Shopify now has multi-currency functionality because that was a huge pain point for us in the past of ensuring that customers can check out in their local currencies. So anything that you can do to make it really easy to buy. Are there any tools or apps that you use to, to power the, the site itself or just the business in general? Yeah, we use a lot of different apps. So um, I guess you mean more so from like the back end standpoint mm-hmm. of site operation. Yeah. So for um, email collection, we use Privy um, because we really like the spin to win um, feature that they have. We find that that converted way better. I think we got twice as many emails from it um, when we A-B tested versus just a normal email pop up. So we use that. Um, we also recently added this ex- this app called Gifter, which auto adds a gift to cart. So whenever someone has anything in their cart, in our case, we give them a free um, makeup bag with their purchase. So it's just another incentivization to make people excited to complete. Uh, we use Clavio for email um, automations. We have a bunch of meta fields that we use as well. Um, Pixen is the company that we use for our skincare quiz, um, just because within skincare, people want to know that they're finding the right products um, for their, themselves. And then we use stamp.io for um, our review collection. Awesome. So thank you so much, Connie and Lars. So newbodynaubody.com is a website. I'll leave you with this last question. What would you say is the biggest lesson learned in 2019 that you want to apply going into 2020? That's a good question. Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> There's so many lessons that we learn every single day. Mm-hmm. It's hard to think of just one. Um, Well, I mean, I can speak for myself where I think oftentimes you get so excited with all these things that you're building um, that, you know, you can get really carried away and only thinking about the future and comparing yourself with other businesses that are doing amazing jobs. And 
Um, and I think that's something that we've had to work on this year is being able to reflect and be like, damn, we actually did a really good job. Like we grew this with just, you know, $4,000, like, you know, now we have an actual office in downtown Toronto, like these little things, it's so easy to overlook, um, and forget about all that you've accomplished. Um, so that's something I would say is definitely a big learning. Another thing is protecting your time, um, which we touched on earlier in the podcast, just ensuring that you're not spreading yourself too thin and always having time for yourself and your health, um, like Laura mentioned. And then for me, I'd say the biggest thing I learned this year was the importance of having the right partners within your business and that people are really what makes a company tick and that these partners can be both internal employees, but then also external vendors. And we've been very fortunate in being able to have some amazing suppliers and you know, even logistics people like freight forwarders that help us to ensure that our company is operating well and um, really investing the time into finding those right people and waiting until you find the right ones is the best way to grow. Awesome. So I mentioned newbody.com, N-I-U-B-O-D-Y.com is a website. Where else should listeners go to keep up with with uh, you two? Mm-hmm. Um, so Instagram is at N-I-U dot B-O-D-Y. Um, so that's definitely where you can find us. We often post, um, you know, founder Instagram stories and chats and Q and A's. Um, so that's where you can definitely interact with us more. We also regularly check our DMs. So if you have any other questions after listening to this podcast, um, whether it be about like what partners we really prefer or what apps we like, um, you know, we're more than willing to share. Awesome. Thank you so much again for your time, Connie and Laura. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.